Film Church. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Listen, Bill. Nobody killed anybody. Someone died. It happens all the time. Life goes on. It always does until it doesn't. But you know that, don't you? Hello, and welcome to Film Church Radio, the podcast that treats cinema as a religion. It's Sunday, I'm Lewis. And I'm Brandon. And we are here to talk about movies. Each week, Brandon and I alternate picking a film for us both to watch and discuss. But this week, we conclude our 2023 director retrospective on Stanley Kubrick. For the past 14 or 13 weeks, we have been watching chronologically the films of Kubrick and discussing them in detail and then ranking them um, and just ticking them all off of our list. This week we are discussing his final film and the only film he made um, in my lifetime, Eyes Wide Shut, from 1999, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And as promised on our Barry Lyndon episode, we do have a special guest returning. Zach is back. Welcome back, Zach. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can't wait to discuss this with you in depth. I know that until recently this had been a film that you had not seen, so That's a pair of fresh eyes hopefully not closed to discuss about this film no i uh, now i've i since we last spoke i've seen it three times wow oh nice wow. awesome <laughs> we're all level pegging now and <laughs> <laughs> um, before we jump in to the the main meat of the film we'd like to say thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast and sending their love for the show if you're new to the show and enjoying it be sure to subscribe and then hit that bell to be notified when there's a new episode available we post it on Sundays because we are a film church and we'd love for everyone to get involved with what we're doing um, and really, you know, come to the church of film that we're trying to build. Um, you can find us on all social media platforms at Film Church Radio, where you can, you can leave us a comment or send a message about the show. And um, we do post some extra content on our YouTube um, and other areas, so be sure to check it out. Also go and follow us on TikTok. That's right, we're on TikTok. How crazy is that? And we'd also love for you to rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you are streaming from. Um, normally what we do now is we'd go to our trailer section. This is where we talk about films other than the main film that we've been watching. But as this is kind of like a celebration of the past few weeks, um, a celebration of Kubrick and kind of all the films he's been making, what I thought we could do is discuss our favorite moments in a Kubrick film. Um, there are there are a lot, but I think this would be a really good time to talk about the top tier moments. So, Zach, as you are our guest, would you like to get us started with either one or some of your favorite Kubrick moments? Sure. Um, a TikTok. You, you, you be careful. Um, uh, my favorite Kubrick moment. I, when you you know when you posed that question originally, I immediately thought of. <clears throat> the very end of Dr. Strangelove um, when Dr. Strangelove stands up and says, mind Fuhrer, I can walk and cut to a montage of nuclear blasts while we'll meet again plays. Yeah. Um, 
And that got me kind of thinking, too, about how much I kind of love the very ending, the, the very ends of a lot of Kubrick movies. Um, the last shot and, well, not just the last shot, but the, the last line of dialogue and the cut to credits at the end of A Clockwork Orange. I was cured all right. It's, it's such a great moment that just, you know, he has a great way of ending a film on something that really just kind of knocks you out. This movie, too, that we're discussing today has a very similar, an ending that kind of does the same thing. Um, so that's kind of what I just kind of kept coming back to. But definitely Mein Fuhrer, I can walk. That is probably my favorite moment in the Kubrick film of all time. <laughs> it is amazing. It's probably the funniest. I mean, there's a lot of funny lines in Strange Love, but it is probably the funniest, I would say, in the film, for me anyway. Um, yeah. And it just leaves, like, it leaves me with a big smile on my face. Well, because you don't know where it's going, you don't you don't know exactly how this film is going to end, you know. Because like the di the dialogue that they're having, like that, it could keep going, like it really could, like. It, yeah. And this last time we watched it, I was like, oh, like this could be a show, like yeah. you could have a show with these characters, like post, you know, nuclear war, trying to rebuild the world. Um, and just like listen to him like talk for hours and being buffoons for hours. Um, but it's like, yeah, how do you like cut that scene off and just end it? And it's like perfect. Yeah. It's just it's, so like out of left field, like what? It's the, the line, it's the performance, it's the cut to the nuclear blasts, it's the music. I have a particular obsession with kind of the very ends of movies and, and how well that like, the, the final cut, how when the last scene ends and if, if the music is timed up and, and things like that. Like I love I love when when the last shot cuts to black in tune with like the beat of a drum of the, the end credit song or whatever. So so uh, those are kind of things that I mean Kubrick doesn't cut to black in really any of these I guess maybe this last one does. But the the timing of the whole thing is is what makes it. And so it's yeah. all of those it's Kubrick and his editor and, and his choice of music and Peter Sellers doing all of the work to make that final moment so great. And that's also one of those things that probably was not necessary, might not have been how the film was ended or in the original shooting version of the script so much as how they figured out like, well, this is a good way to end it in the editing room, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone does know. But. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Brennan? Some favorite moments. Yeah, I mean, I could not pick one. I've got several. So, do we want to yeah. like rotate? Yeah, we can definitely the table. Do yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I'm gonna go in chronological order because that's how I wrote them down. But I didn't do all the movies. I did. I have seven moments. Uh, okay. But in Killer's Kiss, the shots of Vinny, the main character, in the beginning when he's like in his apartment. And he's just, there's nothing really going on, but just the way that Kubrick shot that is, it's just, I don't know. It's like candy. You can just like eat mm -hmm. up the scene. Like huh. <laughs> there's like a shot of him looking through like the, the fish bowl when he's like feeding the fish and just, yeah. I don't know. There's something about that scene that just 
when I when I was like trying to go through the moments, I was like look like thinking of each film off the top of my head, and I was like, mm-hmm. those shots were cool. Yeah, like those moments. Yeah. Um, I'll go ahead and do one more since I have a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then in Doctor Strangelove, the the scenes with Peter Sellers where he's playing the president and he's calling the I guess it's the president of Russia. Is that the <laughs> the correct the term? Premier the premier. The- <laughs> yes, the premier of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> just that that scene just gets me every time when he's like, just the pacing of it and the the progression of of the phone call where he's like, "Oh, I got this. Like, I'm gonna show you guys why I'm the president." <laughs> and then he's just like, "Uh, listen, um." You know the bomb? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you think I feel? <laughs> yeah. What about you, man? I mean, yeah, just there's, I mean, again, there's a few. Um, I really like, I'm going to, I mean, Fear and Desire, we both did not enjoy a whole amount. I really enjoyed the first attack in Fear and Desire with the food and just the the way that that was that attack was told yeah. through you know the food falling on the floor and hands grabbing like it was very visceral um and I and I really enjoyed that I think about that a lot um I mean one of my all time favorite moments full stop is them going over the top in um paths of glory and just the tracking shot through the trenches and how realistic it is with the with the craters of where the shells have fallen and soldiers just falling around. Um, Kurt Douglas is just, it's like imprinted in my brain. I think yeah. that's such an incredible shot. I know that Passive Glory, we both really enjoyed, but that shot especially is up there with some of my favorite. Yeah. I didn't write any down for Passive Glory just cause I like, I couldn't pick out any one scene, I guess in the film, the film as a whole is very impactful. I mean, I guess I I do really enjoy um, when he finally like sort of in, starts insulting his superiors, and they're just like, "Oh, how dare you!" Yeah, the who's the guy who plays like the head baddie, Menju something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's his first name? That that, that actor just Adolf had... Adolf Menju. Adolf Menju. He's got such a distinctive voice that. Uh, just mm, makes him sound like such a prick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things too, that about that film, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but um, there's always uh, sometimes like historical films or, or films set in other countries. There's, there's discussions about how they present the dialogue whether the actors are doing accents, even though they're supposed to be speaking in a language other than English or whatever. And I, th- I think that that's a movie that's a testament to, it's perfectly fine for uh, you know an American film set in France to have actors speaking English. They're supposed to be speaking French, but we're not going to have them do French accents. We're just going to do American accents. That's fine. It's a testament to that because Douglas and Menju have these really great voices that lend themselves to the characters that they are playing. You you just kind of forget that you're supposed to be in France because it's it's this guy standing up for what's right 
versus the prick who's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, what gets me just about, about his character is, is when Douglas finally does say, I forget what it is. I have to go back and, and watch the movie and listen to the podcast. Cause I think I mentioned it in the podcast too. I forget what it is, but he says, he says something that's not even that insulting, but Minju <laughs> immediately like starts acting like a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew you were off to my job. Yeah. He's like throwing a tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what about you, Zach? Any other, any other Kubrick moments? Okay, I didn't write any down, so I'm shooting from the hip. <laughs> but I, I was thinking that I love, and this isn't necessarily a moment. Well, I guess it's a moment, and uh, once again, it's been a long time since I've seen Lolita. I, I didn't re-watch it when I listened to you guys' uh, episode about it. Shelly, not Duvall. Winters. Winters. Shelly Winters. In that film, I love her performance, and there's this, there's a part where or maybe there's a few parts where she's she's trying very hard to be like more uh, quote unquote upper class than she is, and she keeps saying like "Don't you find?" like <laughs> to like the end of her sentences. Yeah, <laughs> and she's just doing these these affectations that are she thinks make her sound more smart and sophisticated, um, that really just kind of make her look more oafish to the people that, <laughs> that she's. And I just really love that. That's probably one of those details about that movie that sticks out. That obviously, it's been years since I've seen it, but that always stuck with me. Um, yeah, the the I mean, the acting in that movie alone just makes me want to. Every time I look at the where we put it on the ranking, I'm like, we should move that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shelley Winters is especially is like. One of those actresses that whenever she shows up in a film, I'm very, very pleased to see her. Yeah. Um, it, if you've not seen Night of the Hunter, listeners and Brendan and Zach, she is phenomenal in that. Plays a really great part. Night of the Hunter is one of the best films. I have not seen it. It's so good. Maybe I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to suggest it at some point because it's yeah. phenomenal. Um, the next moment for me is from 2001: Space Odyssey when the apes see the monolith yeah. for the first time yeah just that moment is so there's n- i mean there's not a ton going on in the film you know but just the the progression of the storytelling leading to that moment and it's probably like 20 minutes into the film mm-hmm. the music and it's just like you know it's just a monolith like it's just this stone this black stone door just sitting in the middle of nowhere with these prehistoric apes and the music and everything is just, it's haunting and engaging and just, I think that's the moment of the film where it starts to connect on some kind of, I don't know, deep subconscious level where you're just like, I'm in what's next. Yeah, it's gripping. I mean, there's so many from 2001 yeah. that kind of stick out. I think that whole film in general. In terms of like storytelling, I absolutely like the scene that still has me like, you know, my, my pulse is, is my pulse rate goes up when I watch it is where Dave and the other astronaut go in the pod to talk about how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're kind of like, how can you hear us? You know, and then they discuss it. And it kind of, it's and that whole shot where you can see how through the window. 
and then it cuts and it's Hal's point of view watching the lips move and it, it is one of the like most burnt like spine chilling you know things in the whole of Kubrick's career is just that he's heard everything you've said this is not going to go well and it's just done so well yeah it's just you know it's a master class in in tension and direction and then like pulling the carpet out from underneath the viewer um it's brilliant i love that scene yeah i the the whole opening sequence um with the apes is such a like ballsy yeah i trust the audience moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh you know obviously the the ending of that sequence is another ballsy i trust the audience moment and that's the cut that everybody knows and loves the cut from the bone to the spaceship um which is a great moment but taking that whole seat that whole sequence just that the whole opening of the film from the title sequence to the dawn of man sequence that it's just i uh, i wish more filmmakers could open up films in ways like that um yeah and and i should i guess clarifying i wish more studio films <laughs> yeah yeah with budgets i think that's something opened up in in ways that just trust the audience to to follow the pictures yeah and i think you hit the nail on the head there about you know something that we've discovered about kubrick is how much faith he put in audiences mm-hmm. and how much he kind of he didn't try and belittle or kind of talk down to yeah. anyone. You know, he did masses amount of research for every film he did and he still didn't try and like spoon feed it us. You know, there's a lot of work in there that needs to be done, which I think is why a lot of people come back to Kubrick again and again is because it's such a rewarding experience to watch a film um, that he's made and kind of there's so many layers to every single one of them. You know, there's so much more that you can like read about it and research and find out, well, this meant that, you know, this, you know, Barry Lyndon, for example, like the paintings that he was basing the shots on, it's like, okay, that adds this extra layer that a casual viewer would not necessarily get, you know? Um, Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's been the best. (laughs) Yeah. Any more Brandon, any more special moments? Uh, Yeah. The boxing match in Barry Lyndon, I, yeah. I fucking yeah. love. <laughs> yeah. Like that was the moment of Barry Lyndon where I like sat up in my seat and was like, oh shit, here we go. And yeah. did and then it just it, I did not expect Barry Lyndon to or Barry to be such a badass. <laughs> so like from that moment yeah. on, I was like, all right, I'm I'm seeing what this guy is doing next. Um yeah. what is that guy's name? Pat Pat Roach, I think. I can't find it, but I'm pretty sure that's his name. Oh, the, the, the other boxer. Yeah, the boxer, and then he he's also in. You know, Spielberg uses him in all of yeah. the Indiana yeah. Jones movies. Um, yeah, I love that moment. Yeah, I love the final duel in Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah, just the 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 tension that that kind of again, you know, again, all these moments that I'm picking are kind of like the very high intensity moments. Um. But yeah, just the the misfire of the first shot and how like how darkly humorous that is, just like oh no, <laughs> you're screwed. Um, yeah, Are yeah, you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we didn't talk about how the boxing match 
is something that Kubrick has done before or filmed before. <laughs> yeah. You know, with uh Day of the Fight and then in Killer's Kiss and then yeah. and then he he has this great boxing match in Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And it's also was the boxing match like handheld camera? I think so. I think so. Yeah, the yeah. way that it was, it was filmed. Close. Yeah. 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 And then later on in the film when he and Bullington have like a brawl uh in front of like an audience. Yeah. That's handheld camera too. And that mm-hmm. breaks up the that that it's such a uh, departure from everything else where you know the whole film is so um you know specifically composed and then you yeah. get these rough handheld shots where kubrick was i'm pretty sure operating the camera himself too more than likely <laughs> yeah so like you i recently rewatched or i started rewatching i didn't finish it uh rewatching room 237 which i had seen a long time ago <clears throat> but there's a guy one of one of the people at the beginning of the movie of that movie says something that totally rung true to me which is the opening shot of the shining um that helicopter shot and how he was like gripping the the, the arms of a seat because he felt like he, he felt like he was gonna like fall over and fall into like the lake like that you know yeah. that that shot is such a like on the edge as it's flying over the lake and into the mountain that he really was just like oh, i feel like it feels like i'm gonna fall over and fall down into the film and i have a similar reaction to that opening shot it's almost nauseating not in a bad way not in a, like i don't want to watch this movie kind of way but it really combined with that music it kind of makes me feel like you're gonna f- fall into something and yeah yeah, it's that sort of, you know, this the whole film, you know. Um, yeah. I was going to cheat and say the whole of The Shining, but I realized <laughs> that it's moment and not, you know, film. Yeah. <laughs> um, the way that Jack Nicholson says Light of My Life is one of my favorite mm. film readings ever, where he's chasing, yeah. well, following Wendy up the stairs. Just the amount of animosity he's got towards her at that point. He's just like ready to rip her to shreds. And his performance, you know, shows it. That that reminds me that what I wasn't also going to say was there's a line delivery in A Clockwork Orange for Mr. Alexander, the author. After he realizes that who Alex is, he's mm-hmm. taking Alex in and he realizes who he is. And he's Alex is eating dinner while he's just sitting there watching. And the way he says, like, how's the food? <laughs> Try the wine. <laughs> so, like great that i mean that's a film with a lot of great line deliveries mm-hmm. the, the the cop who's who's taking all of his stuff when he's checking into prison um are you now or have you ever ever been a homosexual <laughs> uh the line delivery of, of of everything he says is great um yeah but uh, that kind of goes back to uh, it's almost like every kubrick film has some moment where in the line there's this line delivery that just stands out as the yeah. Well, the the light of my life line does it doesn't it come from Lolita? I, I I don't know if 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 that I mean that is an expression light of my life yeah it's just a general expression but yes mm-hmm. light of my life fire of my loins Lolita that's the opening line of the of the main text of Lolita. Mm. Okay. Is it used in the film that Kubrick makes? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. It's it's often considered the opening line, but I don't know that 
I have a weird relationship with this because that book has a foreword, which is actually part of the narrative. It's part of the fiction. And people, mm. I think a lot of times people skip it because they're like, oh, I'm not going to read the foreword. But the foreword is actually the framing device for the novel. Yeah. So I don't know if, if you technically would count the opening line of that being the, uh, the first, line. Yeah. first line of the novel. But Light of My Life, Lolita, Light of My Life, Fire of My Loins is the opening narration from Humbert in the book. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, how deliberate that is on Kubrick's part in, rela- in, in trying to reference Lolita, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could have just been Jack Nicholson. That's true. Reading it that day. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> <Lily>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I love the shot in the shining with Jack, where Jack Nicholson is, is just staring out the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I like it. Yeah. You're um, like, cool. He's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Full Metal Jacket, just Vincent D'Onofrio all the time. Mm-hmm. Love all of it. Yeah. He's amazing. He's incredible. Yeah. I think, I, I can't remember which came first, like recognizing that that was Vincent D'Onofrio in the Full Metal Jacket or recognizing Vincent D'Onofrio outside of Full Metal Jacket. I don't remember, you know, mm. which For me, it was definitely outside. It's always a bit of a surprise when I'm like, oh, it's Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah. Still. Yeah. I think I yeah because I think I had seen Full Metal Jacket and then seen Vincent D'Onofrio and other things and then realized yeah. at some point that it was the same person. It's yeah. like oh shit, <laughs> um, he's he's incredible. And then uh, in this movie, in Eyes Wide Shut, which we're about to discuss, I mm-hmm. love like watching it the second time. I realized how brilliant the shot is where. Uh, Nick is trying to write down the password and then you just see Tom Cruise's hand come in and hold the yeah. napkin yeah. steady. It's yeah. fucking amazing. It's such a good shot. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, from Eyes Wide Shut, just the, I, I really like when he goes back to the house, we're going to talk about it, but we just, like, yeah. it just holds on that shot of the car coming down very slowly. Mm. Um, and then the note being passed through the gate. I really like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to save some of my favorite moments for a bit later though. Cool. Well, that's it for me. Cool. Yeah. That's it for me as well. I mean, again, there's probably a lot more in there that we haven't mentioned. Um, and this will change on the next viewing of each of these films, I'm sure. Um, but for now, we're going to leave the other the past Kubrick films in the past and move forward to our feature presentation. Eyes Wide Shut from 1999. The letterbox summary, Cruz, Kidman, Kubrick. After Dr. Bill Harford's wife, Alice, admits to having sexual fantasies about a man she met, Bill becomes obsessed with having a sexual encounter. He discovers an underground sexual group and attends one of their meetings and quickly discovers that he is in over his head. So here we go. The last Kubrick film. Um, the longest time between movies as well in, a, in all of Kubrick's career. Um, and um, Kubrick passed away just days, weeks after handing in 
a cut to the Warner Brothers executives. So, there is still a question of whether this is the film that Kubrick wanted us to see. Um, but this is what we have. So, Brennan, me and you have both seen it before. Zach, I know you said that you've watched it three times recently. Um, yep. What was it about it that kind of held you back from watching it up until now? Um, I think I may have told Brendan this, but I, I, probably just a, a reluctance to, to run out of Kubrick films. Mm. Uh, because I've seen all of them. Um, I, I can't remember if I've seen those very early shorts, but... I'm I'm not uh, clamoring to watch Day of the Fight. Um, You'll still have Seafarers on there. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at least as far as his narrative feature films go, it was kind of like, well, that's the only one I have left. And, and so there was this sort of putting off like, well, every day I still have a new Kubrick film that I, that I could yeah. be watching. And now there are yeah. no new Kubrick films, unless you consider every rewatch of a Kubrick film, like seeing <laughs> For the first time, all over again. Yeah, for a lot of them, you may as well be. Um, but I think that was just kind of it. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, I should have watched this much sooner. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, talking of watching it much sooner, Brandon, when did you first see it? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. I mean, yeah. I I think I did a kind of a Kubrick dive. Um, maybe like 10 years ago and watched Clockwork Orange and 2001 Space Odyssey and uh, The Shining. And I guess, I, I mean, pretty much all the big hitters except for, you know, Barry Lyndon. Um, I probably watched them all around the same time, including Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, so it's it's been, yeah, it's been a while. It's been probably 10 or more years since I had, I had watched it and I couldn't remember I mean there there are certain things about the movie that stay with you for sure but past the like you know going to the house scene the the big orgy scene I couldn't remember anything I was like I have no idea how this ends I've got no memory of anything after that <laughs> um and it and it was uh in my mind the movie is what was a lot more uh, horror esque, more haunting, more I don't know, um, more startling, more stunning in some ways. The movie is still I I love the movie. The movie's amazing, but I just mean my memory of the movie was a lot more haunting, I think, than this experience. But like I've said, after I said this on I think the Shining episode, after going through all of these Kubrick films. Well, before I went through them, I would have said Kubrick was a horror filmmaker. Now I'm like, I think he's a comedy filmmaker. <laughs> because I can just, I, I've, I, with everything of his that I'm watching now, I sense him just standing behind the camera, just giggling like a, a schoolboy. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, like the, I don't think this, I don't, I don't think that's actually the case. It's, it's, fun to think about that possibility i don't actually think that you know these are comedies I, but I could, be if, I could be misremembering this but i think malcolm mcdowell said in a commentary for a clockwork orange that there were moments 
where Kubrick was like shoving his fist in his own mouth to to stifle so, his laughter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. So some of it is true. Yeah. But but with this film, if if this is a comedy, if Eyes Wide Shut is a comedy, it's one big joke about about Stanley Kubrick having blue balls. Like the whole movie is just a giant metaphor for blue balls. The whole movie looks blue. Tom Cruise is trying to have sex through the whole thing, but never does. Except for, I guess, in the beginning, he has sex with his wife after the party. But, yeah, that's my take. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting thing about the idea of it being a comedy, too, is that uh, I read that the, like, the earliest iteration of, of Kubrick's idea for the film was when he first wanted to make it in the late 60s, early 70s. He wanted to make it as just a flat-out sex comedy. Mm, yeah, his idea was having Steve Martin or Woody Allen in the league. right. That's right. Yeah, and then his wife was like, "Don't make this movie right now. You're not old enough to make that. You need to make this later in life when you've when when you're sure that our marriage is is uh, a sure thing." <laughs> well, I I think she was also putting him off uh, from try, hoping that he just would forget about it and never make it. Uh, there, there's some uh, the the disc for this film has this like BBC television broadcast. It's like 45 minute long documentary that seems like it was kind of made maybe the year between this and AI because it feels like a sort of like commemorating Kubrick. But Steven Spielberg is in it a lot, and the like the his collaborators who, for for AI are in it a lot. So it seems like it was kind of maybe also leading into promotion, promoting that, but. Uh, his wife is in there, and she like hated this book. So I don't think she ever wanted him to make this film. Mm, yeah. So so she may have been hoping he'll forget about it and never make it, but eventually he did get around to it. And I we're 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 lucky for it because although I kind of want to see the Woody Allen version of this. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Lewis? When did you first see this movie and how do you feel about it now? I think I must have seen it when I first started film school. I think that's probably when I kind of put it in. It was like the, the Kubrick film that I knew the least about without having seen it. Um, I didn't understand it yeah. because obviously I was young. I hadn't really been in a relationship for a while and was huh. anticipating a bit more of like a sexual thriller. Um, yeah, and instead, it's a very kind of meditative take on marriage and and who, like who we are as people. Yeah, um, watched it again. I think twenty sixteen. I think was when I last logged it on Letterboxd. So it's been a while, and again, I felt pretty cold to it. I was still a bit like, I'm not, you know, it's not grabbing me in the same ways as the other films. It's not as immediate, but this time something clicked, and I don't know whether it's because. We have been watching them all chronologically, and I can see this overarching theme throughout all of them of the duality of man and like the masks that we put on for everyday life as opposed to who we really are inside. But I just I was mesmerized the whole time. I just think it's just a it's just an absolutely brilliant take on you know masculinity and marriage and like hurt. And like self-esteem, you know, all these things rolled up into just one 
odyssey through the same streets of New York. <laughs> yeah. It's um it's I mean it's phenomenal. It really is. For the listeners out there, uh it should be known that the three of us talking about this film are all in long-term committed relationships. Yes. And do what? Two two specifically are marriages. Yeah. I mean mine might as well be. We've been together My, yeah. for We've been together for 10 years. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know each other pretty well, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um as well as Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? Probably. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, but do you think that that has something to do with it? Has something to do with you liking this movie a lot more now? Because, okay, well, here, here's my take on it. <clears throat> Relationships when you're young are like fantasy, right? Yeah. They're like, they're yeah. like, you romanticize them and fantasize about them, you know, the perfect relationship, the, the perfect couple, um, being partners and all of that. And not to say that it's not like that after 10 years. Um, there, there are still elements of, um, mystery that still exist, I think in our relationship, a mystery in like a in a, like a romanticized way, uh, but relationships also take a lot of hard work. Like if you're gonna be like after ten years, you know you you have to do actual real work to make it work, right? Mm. And even 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 though it it is hard work sometimes. Um, we're all human and we all still have fantasies, you know? And I think this movie is about, uh, I, I think this movie is about the dark paths that you can go on when you let your fantasies go too far, when your ultimate goal is to still be in this relationship and be committed to this person. Um, because Tom Cruise, the, the the his character through the whole movie, he he he's jealous, he's angry, he he wants to you know kind of get revenge on his wife because she had this fantasy, because she fantasized about cheating on him, and so he he tries to go down this path of of cheating on her. But us as an audience, you know, still see sees him as redeemable because he he never actually does anything really. I mean, he kisses one like one woman kisses him. He like touches the prostitute's roommate's boobs. <laughs> That's a horrible <laughs> way to describe a character. <laughs> the prostitute's roommate. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, he he never like consummates anything he never actually cheats on his wife and in the end he comes back to her and he you know just is just overwhelmed with uh just with the the sheer um overwhelming desire 
to hurt her in that way or to cheat on her or to get her back. Just the fact that he had that desire overwhelms him to the point that he just breaks down and, it, you know, he's like, please forgive me. I, I'll tell you everything. You know, at that point, he's just so desperate. And if, I feel like that's that's not exactly something that everybody has experienced. But everybody, I think, that's been in a long relationship has experienced something like that to a degree. This is an exaggerated version movie version of that but it is i think it is it is touching on something that um is that people who who decide to be in a long-term committed relationship will run into at some point big or small one of the or both at some point will have to like come to their partner and be like this bizarre thing happened i have to confess it to you i'm sorry here's like i've got to lay all this out yeah i definitely think that um that the fact that nothing is consummated throughout the film is more about like his subconscious not wanting to hurt her in the same way that he's been hurt yeah like, I think that he keeps kind of getting to this point where it's like, it's right in front of him. He can do it, you know. Um, and he just, he kind of backs away at every time that it's possible, you know. Um, and in the end, it's kind of like, well, it's, you know, he gets his reward because the domino, the prostitute, you know, gets terrible test results back that yeah. could, you know, that he very well could have caught. Um yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, a pat on the back for like, hey, congratulations on not doing that thing that you were trying to do all night. Yeah. You, know, you haven't got AIDS. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it seems to me that like all of the all of the times that he ends up not having sex with anyone, it's not, it's not really up to him. It's like up to fate in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that he just needs to be a bit more like, I don't know, forceful about it. Not in like a, you know, <laughs> in a Sergio Leone way, but in like a... Um, the just, gambling said there is no house password. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, you know. Like, with, I mean, the prostitute was right there and he was just chatting away and then, you that's know. That's true, yeah. He was dragging like, it out. Yeah, it's like, just do it. If you're going to do it, do it. Um I mean, he also had the chance, you know, I know he's not gay, but with the with the um, receptionist at the hotel, you know, all these people have pretty much thrown themselves at him. Um, the, the underage daughter of the... Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the daughter of the guy that died as well. Now, so I, I kind of, I don't know how, I lo- how much I like this uh, letterbox summary. Bill becomes obsessed with having a sexual encounter. Is that really what's happening? I, yeah. To me, it seems like it is. Yeah. I mean the the first the first encounter is the daughter of the guy who dies. He isn't going there with the intent of. He's going there as a doctor. One, yeah. he's going there as a doctor, and two, to get out of the house because he's so frustrated and flustered by what new the news he's heard from his wife that she once had a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, that isn't to me that isn't him becoming obsessed with having 
you know, a sexual encounter. Uh, the prostitute, I think, is the first instance where he really thinks, like, yeah, I'm gonna, I will get back at my wife. And he doesn't. And then he goes to Nick Nightingale. If not for, uh, you know, getting the password, he would not go to this place. And he has no idea what he's getting into when he goes there. Yeah. Just a curious motherfucker who wants to stay out all night because he wants to get yeah. away from his uh, wife for the night. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that I, I've read it, it's just that his, his idea of sex probably before this is very vanilla. You know, he seems a very put-together guy. Nothing is kind of out of the ordinary. They've got, like, a kid and he's a, a doctor and stuff. And this has just thrown his whole concept of sexual relationships out of the window. And this is... I, I, how much of this actually happens is something that keeps coming up to me because it feels, I mean, it feels like a dream. The whole way through, yeah. you know, it's so inconsequential. All these things happen that just like link to one another, you know, that it feels very dreamlike. And I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's him dealing with his shortcomings about, you know, in the bedroom <laughs> in terms yeah. of yeah. like just being able to excite his wife anymore. Right. You know, because it just seems that she had this fantasy and he is like, you know, he's obsessing about it and nothing happened. And he's just like, and even his conversation with her about it is just that, you know, men want to have sex with everything. Women don't really have any desires. Mm -hmm. And it's very backwards, you know? Yeah. I, 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 uh, one thing too is, is that, that her confession is not just about cheating on him, but she was that in a fleeting moment, her desire was to throw away her entire life for one encounter with the sailor. Yeah. Willing to leave her husband and daughter in a fleeting moment, that that is a thought that went through her head. And I do think that like fear and desire uh, (laughs) is a big component of this. It's like an acknowledgement of desire what the film is about to me i think is like the acknowledgement of desire and the taboo of that acknowledgement just the taboo of saying like i had a thought that i screwed someone else and i left you and our daughter for him just for that one night to think that to me is just like well every human has intrusive thoughts or has um thoughts that take them down a dark path, you know, yeah. and, and it isn't even so much the, the problem isn't even so much that she had the thought it's the, that she confessed to it and acknowledged like, yeah, I thought I had that, I had this fleeting moment of, of desire and that's yeah, but, kind of what the movie's all about to me. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. her point, her point of doing that, it's mm-hmm. like her, the way that she delivers the whole story and everything it's you could even read it as being exaggerate exaggerated mm-hmm. like like you said it could have just been one fleeting intrusive thought in in right. reality but she's deliberately telling him this story as as a way to prove to him that women are not basic bitches <laughs> That yeah. women are not like that women have desires and that women are not just looking to men for the uh, st- for stability or for mm-hmm. um, 
you know, whether or not they're going to be good dads or that kind of stuff that women can be um, just as, I don't know. Horny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, there's a sound bite for you. <laughs> <laughs> Horny. <laughs> uh, now, uh, it's something I thought about, and I don't think that this is necessarily a healthy way of watching a movie what I'm about to describe, which is speculating on things that happened before and after the movie. Mm. Um, but I wondered if he was actually just like a serial philanderer who never thought, well, my wife wouldn't cheat on me. Yeah. I, I, I sleep with women that, uh, it doesn't matter. She would do that though. I always wondered that because I mean, he's a handsome guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he looks just like the guy from Jerry Maguire. Um, he's it works, you know, he's this high, high end doctor. Yeah. Um, he's got a staff of beautiful women. He's friends with this millionaire, Ziegler. Uh, and he is completely unfazed when he is called away from a party to assist Ziegler with an overdosing prostitute Hmm. which kind of makes me wonder like oh well i mean are there secrets about stuff like this that happened between him and ziegler and him and his friends whatever that he just knows like it's just between men just business yeah there's very little evidence in the film to back it up it is more of just a a thought that maybe even the next time i watch the movie i'll watch it with this assumption and see how mm. the film plays out and if it affects performances to me or how I see certain things. Because when he yeah. confesses everything to her, we don't hear him confess anything, right? It just fades out. Mm. And he says he's going to tell her everything. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, the, the obvious reason for that is he's just going to tell her what we've already just seen. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't need to hear it. But maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Hmm. I think, you know, in terms of that Ziegler scene kind of jumping about a bit, I think that that does a really, that does a lot of heavy lifting for us as the audience because it automatically, when we get to the, the final scene between um, between Bill and, and Ziegler there, we've already in our head got that connected with, like, sex and overdoses with him, his character. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we get to that scene, it's like, okay, so he was involved somehow in this Miss New York or whatever, kind of having an overdose. Um, but going back to the, um, to like the dream and everything, it wasn't, it's not the dream like to me, that's the most damning is the dream where she's like, she's with the, yeah. the, the Navy officer and she's laughing at him. I mean, uh, to me, yeah. that is like, what is your subconscious at, at this point yeah, yeah, yeah. where you're having dreams about, like sleeping with other men and laughing in the face of your husband. To me, that would be the more worrying part, not the initial desire. (laughs) Doesn't she say something when she's like talking about him touching his patient's breasts and she's like, she's like something about his little dicky or something. (laughs) (laughs) When your patients are having their little titties squeezed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes, the movie's dreamlike, but I don't mm. think anything in the movie is a dream other than those flashes of 
the black and white like Lumiere footage of her with the sailor. I think everything mm. that we see is uh, is happening literally, but it is well, deliberately dreamlike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's I think it's Kubrick's dream. Yeah. You know, I I feel like this is the most personal film that he's made. In terms of just putting his personal life, his current personal life out on mm-hmm. the table, I think yeah. this is the most personal film he's made. Because I think it's it's a literal interpretation, or you know, it's like a dreamlike film, like interpretation of a literal issue that he's having with a yeah, long term relationship. I mean, I've oh, I just see it as. Him returning to his favorite theme, as I mentioned before, just that duality. You know, we talked about in war how it can change you as a human and you have to kind of become somebody else. But even as far removed as, you know, a marriage, do we actually really know the person that we're married to? And like, what is it that we'll, right. you know, are they putting a mask on for us? Are mm-hmm. they, the, you know, who are they around other people? Because I watched it with Chelsea and she said something really interesting, like the first 20 minutes. She's like, you can tell that they're acting. Like, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are very kind of like, I don't know, it's like stagey somehow. It's very kind of, everything's enunciated. They're kind of talking um, very slowly to each other and it's it, you can see them acting. And I think that's deliberate. I think that, you know, that they're, they're acting in front of each other. They're acting in front of guests at the party. You know, when Tom Cruise has got a girl on either arm and he does that awful Tom Cruise laugh, it's very forced. Um, and I just, you know, I think that as the film goes on, they become more honest with each other and become more real. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's what we've seen from Kubrick all the, the whole way through is that we, who, who are we? Yeah. Who am I? You know? I don't know enough about his sex life to, <laughs> to think that this was like him just being like, oh, <laughs> I need to get out there. <laughs> I am sure there's a documentary about a church that you could watch that would talk about it. But yeah. <laughs> uh, also uh, the the level to just which you know uh, people that you encounter in, in your daily life outside of your marriage. You know, he, he, we kind of assume that he's got this very, but he's got a pretty good friendship with Ziegler, and at the end of the film. Ziegler is telling him like there's things that you don't know about and you need to keep your nose out of like it's you know our friendship has its limits (laughs) yeah you know there there I am I am privy to things that you cannot know about ever you know and you need to stop Mm. trying you know thinking about it or things are going to get bad and even people you just met I mean the uh what is the guy Romanian or whatever the, the guy who owns the shop <laughs> yeah. Serbian yeah. Slavic guy whatever who is like screaming about calling the police on these guys for you know sleeping with his daughter <laughs> and the next time we see him he is all but offering up his teenage daughter to yeah. uh, Tom Cruise so it, it's kind of this like you think you know someone yeah <laughs> It's it's like layers of that through everyone, from a person mm. you've met to someone that you're you think you're close friends with to someone that you're married with. You think you know someone, but there's always some thing that they're hiding. 
Yeah. And they might and once they reveal it, it changes the dynamic completely. Yeah. Well that scene especially and like there's a few others along the way, it just blurs the line the lines between what's staged and what's real. You know, there's things that we see that we're later told, oh no, that was staged. You know, that whole scene with the teenage daughter in the menu, like, was was that staged? You know, was that, yeah. you know, was that there to kind of, I don't know, so that she could whisper, you'll need it, you know, you'll need it, whatever, like gold trimmed or whatever she says to him. You know, yeah, you're not really sure what is for the benefit of Bill or what's real, you know? I, t- I take, took it all on face value. <laughs> took it all on... See, I see it more dreamlike. See, this is the thing. Yeah. Like, all those little things, I'm just, like, becoming more and more into the fact that it wasn't... I mean, it probably... I mean, it all did happen. I feel like it all did happen, but I don't know. It's just, like... It's like an other world experience. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you on that. That uh, I think it's very deliberate. Uh, you know, film is the, the only real art form that can, like, imitate a dream. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. A dream is like watching a movie in your head while you sleep, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and movies are, I, I I mean I like a film that taps into the dreamlike quality of film because mo- I think most movies don't really do that. You have David Lynch, obviously, but um, uh, there's an artificiality to this film, and the dreamlike quality, all of that is deliberate. But I don't think that any of it is to suggest that these things aren't happening mm. or they're not real. Because one, I just think Kubrick is smarter than yeah. that. It's too much of he's too intellectual to be like, oh, it was all a dream. Um, and the film distinguishes be, uh, what is quote unquote real and what is a fantasy or a thought or a dream by having Tom Cruise's visions of his wife be portrayed in black and white like silent film style film so mm. those are not literally happening the film tells us that through the language right that those are visions he's having but everything else dreamlike as it is to me is just that is the world that this character lives in yeah maybe less dreamlike then and more the inevitability around it just that he is kind of careering towards this and he can't like everything is just leading him there by nature. You know, he's he's supposed to end up at this party. He's supposed to kind of have this confrontation with Ziegler. He's supposed to go back to his wife and want to, you know, unload and tell her everything. You know, it's just like he's an unwilling passenger on this steam train to the end. You know, he's trying to avoid it at all times and it's just taking him there. It's like life, baby. That's it. Yeah. I love how as the film progresses, there's just more and more. It's like throwing it in his face. Like when he's being chased by, well, not chased, but being followed by kind of like the goon. Yeah. Um, and he comes outside a cafe, which is Verona, which is, I know, you know, we've all worked at Starbucks. Verona, Cafe Verona was the coffee of love and we sold it Valentine's Day and paired it with chocolate and all that kind of stuff. And then on the opposite corner was like, a lingerie shop and it's just all these things that just keep being thrown in his face of like this the world the sexual world is bigger than you think <laughs> and bigger than yeah. you and he just can't escape it anywhere he goes well i think the film poses the question and maybe this is what i was getting at earlier it poses the question of like what is more natural 
what what is what is more in human nature is it monogamy or polygamy you know what because yeah. what what do yeah. we come from like if we come from you know these ancient apes like polygamy is kind of like what we're used to yeah. and like is monogamy is, is to like commit to a relationship against our human nature and we're constantly having to fight against that in order to keep it hmm. and i think i mean yeah i don't i don't think the film necessarily answers that question but i think that's fine yeah we've said it all the way through there's it leaves you with questions but that's good you yeah you don't want to be like oh okay this is what it was then yeah, yeah. there's a there's a story that I read and I can't remember where I read this exactly, but after a, a take and I don't know what it was, it was during the filming of the shining. There was it calls cut and there's a, someone has shared an anecdote of him turning to them and saying, let's see what the French film critics make of that. And he winked. <laughs> and today he might say, let's see what the podcasters make of that. Yeah. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I don't think there are any answers in this. And I think, I don't think he has, he has maybe what he thought, what he believed, but he didn't necessarily care about putting that in, in the film, you know. And uh, I think that's the end of my point. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to point out after this uh, whole, is this a dream debate? That the movie is based on the novel Dream Story. Well, yes. Uh, by Arthur Schnitzler. Uh, Schnitzler, yeah. Yes. Schnitzler um, was um, uh, Austrian Jew uh, living in Vienna at the same time as Freud. And uh, he wrote a lot of all of his fiction or a lot of his fiction was very, very much about dreams <clears throat> to the point where I think Freud even made like a public comment saying like, I, I would never have to sit down with him he's he's published something like you know he he's published the full analysis his stories are his psychoanalysis like i don't need to mm. analyze his dreams yeah uh, uh trom novel i think is the like original german title but yeah th that dream like quality comes from the book yeah um, mm. and i believe that the the novel uh the film follows the novel's plot very very closely I think the only major addition is the character of Ziggler. There's no analog for him in the book, I don't think. Yeah. But it is an otherwise fairly straightforward adaptation, um, just transporting the, uh, changing the names and transporting the setting to sometime in the 90s in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. And not it's not it's not set around Christmas either, right? The book, I think it's set. Probably um, the carnival or something. Yeah, it's like another like mm. celebration, but it's not Christmas. Right, because the the opening like party that they're at is is like a carnival celebration downtown or something like that. Yeah, I just want to say that I am so glad that this is Kubrick's final film. Not not that I I wish that he had made more. Thank God it's over. <laughs> I'm not glad it's over. I'm. I, it's so interesting to me that such like a filmmaker of such high caliber and such a reputation and everybody waiting to see what he puts out next does something so left field as his final film. 
but not really when you think about it. As I said with last week's episode, it, you know, if he had ended on Full Metal Jacket, people would have remembered him as a war filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And with this, it's it's it shows you that that's not exactly who he was. He was an artist, and this film has so many art house filmmaker qualities to it, and that's what I love about him as a filmmaker is that he was an art house filmmaker. Mm-hmm but he was so popular like he was making high like big budget movies that made money at the box office but mm-hmm. he was making art house films i mean this film has like the the way that it's shot the way that it's lit like a lot of people light their films like this now today but back then i don't think it was as, as common just like the excessive use of the blue light um, and the music feels very art house to me, and I I love that quality to it because it yeah, feels think... like an independent filmmaker. Even though I mean he is he is the ultimate independent filmmaker because he has all yeah. the money and all the final say. <laughs> yeah, he's still yeah, indie. You bring the... me on to one of my favorite. Um, things about Eyes Wide Shut is the is Larry Smith's cinematography, um, and the just the especially that blue lighting as you said, you know, um, the the switch from when when they're having that conversation when they're smoking the reefer, and they're you know, and the blue light is in the bathroom and they're in that warm glow of the bedroom, and then as soon as she tells him of the fantasy, the next time we're in the bedroom, the warm glow is outside of the room. It's like all that. Like all the warmth and togetherness of this bedroom has now left. It's just a cold, desolate place, and it's and it just it's that subtle shift of us as the viewer that when we see that, you know, it tells us where these characters are emotionally. You know, um, Bill is just the passion's gone. You know, and maybe and it's the same for um, Nicole Kidman's character as well. Um, Alice, I think. Is it Alice? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the passion's gone from their relationship. It's not, I mean, it's not a passionate one at all. And that's all down to the cinematography, really, from Larry Smith and how he gets that across. Well, yeah, an, an independent filmmaker and yet casting the two biggest star, two of the biggest, certainly the biggest husband and wife stars at the time. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think, I don't know if we talked about this when we did Barry Lyndon, but like, or you guys have probably touched on it, that Kubrick was very uh, uh, sensitive about the box office results of his movies. Like he wanted them to do well. He did not want his movies to fly. He wanted, he, he did want people to go and pay to see his movies in droves. Um, And so, especially post Barry Lyndon, it does feel like, each of those films is there's a deliberate choice of what feels like guaranteeing box office success, adapting the shining one of the biggest sensational books, you know, in uh, America or in the world. I don't know how, you know, but certainly a, a, a book that put Stephen King on the map, full metal jacket. Um, I mean, I don't, maybe maybe my theory falls apart with that. I don't know. War movies, they're popular. <laughs> I think also for Full Metal Jacket, because when you started thinking, talking, I was thinking about that. I think also 
we're not like we're not supposed to know who's going to survive. They're just gonna they're just kind of nameless recruits. You know, the, it's the numbers as opposed to the individual in Full Metal Jacket. But Full Metal Jacket has that, you know, pop soundtrack that I'm sure he's also thinking like, well, okay, that's a record that is going to get us money too, you know, the soundtrack for that film. And then Eyes Wide Shut, you cast Tom and Nicole, that's box office success. Yeah. I, and I think that, I, you know, I do believe that thinking went in his process of trying to make these movies, but um, the fact that Tom and Nicole were married almost seems like the, the idea of using a married couple for those characters almost seems like one of those stipulations he probably had, like wanting to use an actual uh, an- waiting for an Android technology to catch up. Yeah. So that he could make AI with a real Android. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that the idea of, because the, uh, in the special features on the, disc for eyes wide shut they talk about how one this film was extensively rehearsed all of the performances that you're seeing were rehearsed down to every little detail and that's before they're doing the zillion takes (laughs) you know they're doing rehearsals first they're doing rehearsals then they get to a certain point and kubrick starts taping the rehearsals not filming them just taping them and then then filming starts and the, they were channeling their real marriage into their performances in those scenes together. Um, they talk yeah. a lot about that. Uh, so I think that that had to also just be something for him where he was like, this is going only going to work if I get people who are actually married. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Kubrick was really stoking the flames for this kind of t- trust to fall down between them. You know, he didn't want... Um, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman to discuss their characters with with each other. They didn't. He didn't want them to kind of be sharing notes outside of the filming. Right. Um, and then when Nicole Kidman shot the the dream sequence or the imaginary sequence, it was a closed set, and Tom Cruise wasn't allowed anywhere near it. And it went on for like four days, <laughs> just to really kind of mess with his like, what is happening on that stage, you know? Yeah. Um, and Again, people have seen it as Kubrick like toying with them, but uh, it's all for the end goal of, I mean, pure cinema. He just wants it to be as real as possible. He wants these performances to be as believable as, you know, as they possibly be. And if that means playing with a marriage, he's going to play with that marriage. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's interesting there too is Tom Cruise talked about one of the difficult parts of making this film for him was the fact that he is in essentially the entire movie. Yeah. He's in almost every shot or, you know, he, he's the focus of, of uh, you know, if he's not in the shot, it's uh, incident where you're talking about incidental establishing shots. Basically he's in 98% of the film. And, and I think that that was daunting for him that he'd never really, he'd been a star, but he'd never you know, this entire movie is riding on him from start yeah. to finish. So there's also that interesting thing of what are they doing on the days where they need Nicole and not me? That's kind of yeah. like, it'll be, especially when you're, you're on the call sheet every day, except for like these couple of days. <laughs> yeah. And it's a closed set as well, which obviously means, you know, okay. like, yeah, nudity, sex scene, you know, and they both signed open-ended contracts. So when they joined the production, 
neither of them could work on another film until this was completed. And it took, what, like two and a half years to like finish because they did the initial shoot and then Kubrick called everyone back to do reshoots um, like, tw- like six months after they'd finished. So. Wow. I think it held the Guinness World Record for the longest film shoot ever. Right, like the longest continuous film shoots. I mean, yeah, yeah. I've, 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 it probably still does that, right? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. For a single film. Well, just like in terms yeah. of. I was going to say, I think maybe that might be like the the asterisk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but they shot all three. Well, Boyhood was over. You know. Oh well, twelve yeah. years. Yeah. But that's not continuous. Yeah, is it? exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I did want to point out that the lighting and the scene you're talking about, uh, where the there's like the blue and the yellow separating yeah. the two rooms, they yeah. do that in The Shining, in the scene in some of the scenes with uh, Dick Holleran, uh-huh. played by Scatman Crothers, uh, when he's like waiting around, when he's like making the phone calls, he's like uh-huh. waiting around. You can see yeah. that, that they do the same kind of technique, which is cool. Yeah, and the blue is also in Full Metal Jacket when Private Power goes crazy at the end. That's it's true, It's all yeah. bathed in that blue moonlight. Mm-hmm. That evil blue. That he psychotic blue. Yeah. <laughs> blue just means you're sad. Yeah. You're depressed. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, you suggested blue balls. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, yeah. I think that I think that um, Bill's night would have been cut a lot shorter um, once he had some post nut clarity. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I made a mistake. Yeah, it was just a it was just a dream. She didn't do anything. What am I doing? Meditate. Yeah. Uh, wink, wink. Before he left the house to visit the the dead guy, and he would have just come home after that and. He should have yeah, just exactly. gone to the fucking cinema and watched a movie. God damn it. <laughs> Where were you all night? I was watching a double feature. There was I, I was looking up on YouTube some um conspiracy theories. Because that's always fun to do with Kubrick films as we talk about like room two three seven and stuff like that. Um and they there was one that was talking about the fact that at Ziegler's party they're all there's like drinks and like Christmas lights and dancing and bands and stuff like that, but there's no food anywhere. And that throughout the film, this is a constant theme where the the quote unquote lower class that he comes in contact with have all been eating or are eating at a certain point, and the only thing that he orders throughout the film is black coffee. Um, he never kind of you know partakes. You know when he goes to Domino's, she's like, oh sorry, I've just been cooking, and she moves the pan across. When he goes to find out um, where Nick went, and he goes to the like the little restaurant, everyone's eating around him. He just orders coffee, and it's kind of that you know he's too like he's too kind of upper class to be seen eating in front of people. Like he'll just order black coffee or water. Well, and the funny thing about that is that there, there's still limits to how much uh, to how far up the echelon he can go because yeah. Here's a guy who can offer up two hundred dollars more, you know, than the the asking price of a rented tux. Who is willing to pay a prostitute one hundred and fifty dollars 
just for the trouble of bothering her and going home without, you know, um, bothering her. Yeah. <laughs> exchange of services rips a hundred dollar bill in half for a taxi driver. Yeah. So they'll give him the other half later. Um, but there's still like a level that he's not welcoming. It, yeah. It, uh, it's not to say that he's not rich, but his wealth is also, he kind of flaunts it to working class people, a sex worker, yeah. taxi driver, a, a shop owner. And uh, I don't know, well, would a shop owner be working class? He's part of the petite bourgeoisie, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's still, he's still not welcome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of thrown in his face as well. You know, when, when he gets found out, he's right. like, well, how did you know? Oh, he used the password for, twice and you left your taxi cab waiting at the front gates. Right. And it's yeah. very kind of like... And your receipt you was in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, you moron. Like, these are things that we would not dream of doing. Yeah. Um, you're so below us. And he's like, oh. <laughs> I just want to say, I love this movie, but... The, the orgy scene to me is kind of disappointing. Uh, it, doesn't go, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go weird yeah. enough for me. Yeah. It's way too like, and I get, I mean, I'm sure this is just Kubrick's, you know, what Kubrick wanted it to be. That's fine. I'm not implying I would have done it better than Kubrick. But, I, you know, I think it would have been, like, creepier if, like, yeah. one, if everybody was naked and, like, everybody had, like, an old wrinkly body, you know? Yeah. Not the, the statuesque, these tall women, uh, tall, thin women walking around, like, I, I just, I think that something like, you know, everyone's naked and everyone's old and wrinkly because they're rich and they screw each other. And that's yeah. what they, it's ritualistic and whatever. It, it just felt to me... Like it wasn't creepy or weird or strange enough. Yeah. Mm. It wasn't otherworldly enough to me. It's one of those areas where I'm like, was he holding back? Uh, yeah, I think. The one part of the film that got censored on its original release. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, we've talked, there's been a few times where he's had to battle the censors to get it from an X rating down to an NC 17. Um, because it was still, you know, an X rating was the kiss of death. It was still like, okay, this is pretty much. Well, going to um, be labeled around the world as a porno. Well, in the seventies, a film could release with an X rating, and yeah, and people would uh, people understood. Uh, I mean, Midnight Cowboy had an X rating when it won the Best Picture Oscar. Uh, Midnight Cowboy and A Clockwork Orange were both uh, box office successes with X ratings. The X rating became something to avoid when the the MPA didn't copyright it so that allowed adult film studios and filmmakers to use it for themselves and and that's why they invented triple x they were like you think this is x ratings for adults well this is three x's right and so it got it got out of control for the mpa they didn't want to use it because of that um the the funky thing about this movie to me is that this movie was never rated nc-17 it was edited by Warner Brothers before they submitted it for rating because they were afraid it would get an NC-17. And Kubrick was dead at this point, so he had no actual say in this. But it's very... I don't know. It's just interesting that yeah. 
the, the like we kind of um, as a society like kind of went backwards because an X-rated film in the 70s could make money because it was just understood like this is a movie for mom and dad, not for kids, whatever. That's yeah. fine. Mom and dad would go to the theater and go see a movie without little Billy. Um, but by the 90s, you all, you've already started that kind of like four quadrant thing where movies have to appeal to the widest audience possible. It's kind of like now where it almost seems like everything is PG-13, you know, um, but that was beginning back then where it was just like, it's, it, we don't even want it to be NC-17, even though, you know, what, what would, it really wouldn't be bad if it was rated NC-17. And we'll never know if it would have been because they didn't submit it for rating for that. But then like NC-17 is also treated by the film studios. Well, I don't even think it's the film studios. It's the, it's the theater companies because you didn't, you had regional distribution in the 70s. In the 90s, you just have, it, it's it's released in the entire country all on the same day. So the big theater chains are in control. They won't carry NC-17 movies. NC-17 movies can't be advertised in newspapers because those newspapers just, and all of it is to just avoid controversy. It's like, we don't want to risk someone protesting us carrying a film. So we're just going to blanket say, we don't carry NC-17 movies. And therefore, studios don't want their movies rated NC-17 because they can't release them NC-17. Also, the biggest NC-17 movie released before this was Showgirls, which was a huge flop. So there may have also just been that bitter taste in the mouths of, of studio heads where it's like, we don't want this to be another Showgirls if it gets rated NC-17. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we run into the, you know, the Kubrick dying just before it was released. His daughter said that, there was a chance he probably would have still been tinkering with it for a year. Well, you know, after this to get it ready for how he wanted it right. to be seen. So there's a chance that even though, you know, I know when you look about it, it says that he died a few days after handing in his final cut. I don't think it's his final cut. I think there's still things in there that he was probably wanting to tinker with and change. So I don't think that, you know, we, we quite got the, the finished film. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what kind of major changes you could make. I mean, because even if you look at like the changes he made to 2001 and The Shining, I think we're just kind of like shortening sequences. Yeah. Um, but he pretty much changed the full ending of The Shining though, at the last minute. Oh, did he? Yeah, there was a whole scene where Wendy um, and, oh my gosh, I forgot his name, the, the manager of the hotel met in hospital, like that came right at the end of the film. When it was originally released, that was the ending. Um, well, just before he cut it, like two days before oh, the okay. premiere. Um, well, you know, if he had lived, I'm sure he would have changed yeah. it. But yeah. it seems like it on the day he died, it probably was the final cut. Yeah. And it may have been subtle things, you know, we'll do take 61 of this instead of take 35, right. you know, so. I do, I do feel like, you know, even uh, with all the, you know, even though this film could have gone further with the the orgy scene, more graphic. Uh, well, it's, more it's, edgy. Not, it's not it's, about being graphic to me. It's more of just like I don't know. There's something. Weirder. Yeah. Yeah. It's it not. Be, yeah. I wanted it to be frightening. I guess. Even even yeah. though there's that, I think yeah. it is amazing when you compare this film to Lolita, which is I I I guess the only other film in his filmography 
that the entire subject matter revolves around sex. Like mm-hmm. most of his other films are about violence or sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that like that was a film like just looking at film history mm-hmm. <laughs> and looking at like what he had to do to get around you know uh the MPAA or you know the powers that be to be able to yeah. make a film about sex and have audiences come see it mm-hmm. the evolution of that to now you know the whole movie is just tits and ass is kind of crazy yeah um but in the the book that I read about Stanley Kubrick by David Mickix, said it right finally. <laughs> uh, what, he said that one reviewer of the film said, "Whose idea of an orgy is this? The Catholic Church's?" <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I do like the idea of them having like a strange religious ritual. Yeah, um, because that is like present in. Well, that's the other thing is like, as far as conspiracy theories go, some people think Stanley Kubrick was killed because he was actually exposing the real lives of certain elite people. Um, But when you do look into those conspiracies about the elite, those sort of elite things, Bohemian Grove is the one that comes to mind. Um, That's like what it's always portrayed as having these like weird religious, there's like a ceremony (laughs) involved. Yeah. Not just everybody take your pants off and go crazy, you know? Um, and this is why I think that, you know, it just plays more into this dreamlike <laughs> for Bill. It's just that for little Bill, this is probably the most deprived his little mind gets. He's <laughs> like, okay, there's a man being used as a table and someone's having sex <laughs> on top of him. That's as far as it goes, you know? Um, I mean, <laughs> that's how I like to think about it. Do you guys know who played the red cloak, the guy who oh, was who Leon Vitaly. Yeah. Lord Bullington. Yeah, yeah that's him. And he did you a lot of characters in that scene? Do what? He's like the guy he's like the guy who takes his coat. He he's uh, the when he when he first wa- when Bill first walks in and he looks up and there's like two people in the second, there's like a man and a woman on the balcony that look down at him. Leon Vitali is also the guy in that mask. He's like Yeah. He's just all, it's just like, we need a shot of a guy in this because he was there, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was like this, the gopher of, of standing around in that film and that sequence uh, in masks. And there's a very famous person that lent their voice to one of the, uh, one of the women, well, the woman at the party that gets paired with uh, Bill. And it's mm-hmm. a link to Todd Field as well. Oh, who's the, who is she? Kate Blanchett. It's her voice as what? the as the woman, yeah, that um that tells Bill to get out. It's not her playing the part. Right. It's her voice though. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. As far as final cuts go, and and actually this is kind of like everything Kubrick, you know, it's fun to speculate. Uh I uh, have I've kind of come to where I I'll ask what does his family say and i'll I'll typically just kind of trust their answer because he was very 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 close-knit with his wife and his brother-in-law his brother-in-law jan harlan was uh, a producer this is chris his wife's brother was a a producer on all his films i i want to say starting with barry linden but he may have also 
been there as far back as the Clockwork Orange. Um, and like he also produced, I believe he produced uh, AI. He was very involved in getting AI made with Spielberg. Um, and I, I have a tendency to lean towards what they say. Like there's a whole section on Wikipedia about different people saying, Kubrick called me up and said, man, this movie sucks. And then, you know, other people saying like, yeah, no, he had, that didn't happen. And all this sort of back and forth. And the family says, Cooper Harlan, John Harlan has said that Stanley was very satisfied with the film that he delivered to the executives. It's almost like the death was, I, I know you kind of, we kind of said like, oh, was he sort of trying to get this stuff out, you know, before he died. And it does almost feel like, like he died, like it was kind of like, oh, my work is done. And then he died. Mm. Mm. is that almost kind of sense with the film the way it's like he delivered the print and then reading mm. was gone yeah yeah i mean it sounds like from the stuff i've read that he died of exhaustion that that's also a possibility yeah he was a sedentary man who smoked <laughs> probably yeah. didn't eat very healthy i don't know yeah yeah that'll that'll do it <laughs> yeah yeah who worked all the time? <laughs> well, his uh, he, he his father his, his father was a doctor, and he supposedly would not go to the doctor. Mm. He would just pres- prescribe himself stuff, self medicate, <laughs> and that kind of thing. If we're, if we're talking about the men versus women, a lot of men do not go to the doctor. No. Yeah, I would go more if I had money and insurance. But... <laughs> Right. That's not the reason, though. But yeah, that's not not like the driving force why men don't go to the doctor. Could we we, um, talk a little bit about Jewish stuff? Because I don't know if you guys have really touched on this because I'm sort of interested in this because I'm Jewish. Yeah. uh, Kubrick's also Jewish, but you would never guess that. There's no sense of, of Jewish Jewish identity or Jewish culture in any of his films. Just The Shining. It's all about it. His films have an almost like because the other thing is like his his films don't have any real sense of like any kind of um any kind of identity like beyond being human like mm-hmm. there's no to me there's not really ever like a national identity to any of his films like his films don't feel like American films but they also don't feel like British films. The, the yeah. one film that feels like a British film is A Clockwork Orange to me. That's like the one yeah. that feels because it's like all English actors, obviously set in England and filmed in England based on an, a, a, an English book. And also kind of it's a little late for this, but it feels like it's part of like that, like British angry young man, like British new wave, like. 60s and stuff like that yeah like the the young guy who's kind of like the anti-social person against the system and the casting of malcolm mcdowell adds to that because he plays that if yeah it's uh that's an iconic you know performance and directed by lindsey anderson who's deeply associated with that that film feels like it is like a late bloomer to an actual sort of like british film movement but none of his other films feel distinctly british or english or American, and certainly not Jewish. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this movie in particular is based on a novel that's very Jewish <laughs> because yeah. the novel, the characters are ex- explicitly Jewish. The, the, um, the incidents where Bill is harassed by the, the college guys, um, you know, and they, they basically just emasculate him. But in the book, that is a uh, specifically an anti-Semitic like harassment that the character yeah. received. And mm. um, he was, according to his co-writer on the script, who is also a dubious source of information, I guess, according to the family, um, he did say that Kubrick wanted to remove all traces of Judaism from the book. To, and he, to the point that he... He said he wanted to, he wanted the character to be like a Harrison Ford type goy, and then named the character Hartford after Harrison Ford. <laughs> the reason this is interesting with Eyes Wide Shut to me is one: his earliest version of this movie was a sex comedy starring either Woody Allen or Steve yeah. Martin. Now, Steve yeah. Martin is not Jewish, but you would not. I would not blame you if you thought he was, because he's like an honorary member of the tribe. He, he passes for Jewish. Um, and Woody Allen is, his entire persona is this very specific negative stereotype of, of masculine, of Jewish masculinity. So Kubrick's earliest version of this movie would probably never have been able to remove itself from mm. a, a, like a Jewish reading uh, and, but then he goes and makes a completely non-Jewish film. And it's interesting to me too, that he was working on a script for a Holocaust film before he made this, mm-hmm. that is about pretending you're not Jewish to survive the Holocaust. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Where am I going? Th- I'm not going anywhere. I don't know where, where this all leads. I just think these are like, it, it's a strange thing about him. Um, and even the fact that that when he was actually going to tackle a very very Jewish story, that it would be a story about characters, the premises to characters who get forged documents that say they're cat, I think like Polish Catholics instead of Jews, yeah. so they're able to travel out and and get a, get out. The idea that you know removing Jewish identity, I'm just so curious to know where that comes from. Yeah. You know uh, why it is. It's such a strange thing to me. Yeah, um, I think that this. I think that this does play into the film a little bit, Zach. I think you've hit on something because you know it's set around Christmas, which is you know a Christian holiday. Um, in the only place where it doesn't feel like Christmas is in the apartment, the Hartfields apartment. There doesn't yeah. seem to be that much, and in the opening scene, there is a menorah-style candle. On yeah, top of his dresser. I saw that, and I was trying to figure out what it was, but I, I didn't linger on it too long. And and it could just be like a kind of semi-nod to the book. Right. Just like we know where we're going. Um, but, I mean, it could also be, again, about these people um, putting on a, a face for the outside. You know, they, they're toy shopping um, together for Christmas, but they don't seem to be too into Christmas as a whole. No. You know, it's like outside in front of people, there are different, like, different people than they are behind closed doors. And I don't, I think there's only like one instance where this theory kind of like comes together. Um, but I mean, it, 
you know, it's a theme he loves. And like you said, it's kind of like he's very, he's been very aware of, you know, Jewishness, I guess, throughout, you know, in recent kind of developments of projects. So I don't think it's against the odds that he would insert some ideas into this. Yeah. You know, Ziegler sounds Jewish to me. Yeah. He's not a nice character. No. What are you doing, mm-hmm. Stanley? You're disappointing your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very fascinated with like just the outside elements of this movie and where it sits. Mm. Uh, like um, when it came out, the marketing blitz was Cruz, Kidman, Nicole, Cruz, Kidman, Kubrick, right? That's what it says on the poster. Yeah. Open number one, it's opening weekend. It was also the same weekend that JFK Jr. died. So it was a very dark weekend in America. And uh, huge drop off to week two, like more than 50%. And then just sort of like fizzled out. Um, very interesting to me that this movie was never up for awards when the award season came up. And, and I'm not saying that in the sense that like, well, this should have absolutely, this was the best picture of 1999. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that that there was not a rallying around Kubrick, a posthumous rallying around the last Kubrick film. Yeah. Like by awards bodies. That seems like something that would have happened. Um, Even if it was just like the lone best director nomination, that almost seems like, you know, that happens, you know, once every hundred years. It's like, it is kind of strange that, that that didn't happen, but that might play into how divisive the film was because so many people were just, uh, I think, flabbergasted by it. Like they didn't know what to think of it. They didn't like it. And yet the following year, I think if you go to like, if you try and find best films of the nineties, like lists that were made in the year 2000, like when we were like, it's probably on a few of those. Yeah. (laughs) Like there were people who immediately wrecked I think Scorsese, yeah, I'll always trust Scorsese. If he singles out, <laughs> if you find an interview and he singles out a title, I'm like, it's it's probably worth looking at. You know, it's, yeah. it's probably worth its salt. And it's like some people immediately were like, he died. He made a masterpiece and then he died. And some people were like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, so that reaction probably also just kind of plays into that because it maybe is a film that it took a lot of. Uh, a lot of time for people to appreciate because uh, yeah, I think, now it is regarded as one of the best of the decade. Yeah. I still do think that discourse is going on though. I still think that people yep. are still like, what the hell is this? <laughs> people are like this is his last masterpiece. You know, this is the, the film that he kind of left us with that's right. as good as the rest. Um, and I don't know if that is as discussed with his other films. I think his other films are all, Mm-hmm. You know, more unanimously agreed that it's it's a it's great. You know, whereas this is still very kind of up and down, depending who you talk to. Yeah, and he did turn to someone on the set and wink at them and say, "Let's see what they make of this one." Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we'll never know. We'll never have that uh, I, reaction I, I, of him. I'm better off not knowing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we're better off just watching the films and finding our own meaning in them. Yeah. The great Todd Field, 
wonderful performance as Nick Nightingale. Yeah. And I love when he says, I just play the piano and he twi- twizzles. <laughs> <laughs> What the where he twiddles his fingers? Yeah. <laughs> fingers. Mentored by Kubrick and went on to become a great director himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also spent, takes a lot of time between projects. That was something that I uh, heard that they talked about on one of the documentaries too, that was uh, Kubrick like always felt like crap when people would bring up how long it took between, like he felt like, like a failure. That he yeah. was movies, and it is interesting that in the lead up to this, he was writing two other films. He was writing he, AI yeah. and Aryan Papers. Yeah, um, yeah. I think he gave up on Aryan Papers one because it was so close to home, and he felt like it was impossible to actually film because of how, like, if he if he was going to actually show what was in the script, it was going to be mm-hmm. way more grotesque than any of the other films he had made <clears throat> and then at the same time like Spielberg had announced that he was doing Schindler's List and I think he didn't want another pass or he didn't yeah. want another uh, yeah, full metal like jacket platoon and yeah. platoon situation so he's like I'm just let's move on let's do something else Yeah, and, and it seemed like he was relieved and his wife was relieved because he was he was already putting so much into it that it was just like yeah. Obvious that it was going to kill him, I guess, but you know, then his next movie did anyway. Yeah, and films are so consumable. I mean, we don't sit there like if a, if a novelist takes ten years to write a book, mm-hmm. it's not like this big like oh what a yeah know, come on you know. But with films, because we can sit and watch it in one sitting, you know, we get the home video release. It, we seem to kind of own it from the get go. It is like okay, what are you doing next? You know, I've consumed it. I'm on. I need the next thing. Yes, and it's and I, Kubrick is very, you know, he he read a lot, he did a lot of research, as we know, you know, um, like he wanted to get it right. And you look at his filmography, and he got it right. You know, it it paid off. So yeah, there is a certain point where he one of one of the reasons he stopped with AI and pursued this was kind of the realization that AI wasn't right for him to direct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I was excited about working with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and always leaving wanting more, right? I mean, yeah. how many directors are you just like, oh, okay, enough, <laughs> enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get to that point in Hollywood. Every film yeah. is a reboot, remake, whatever, and it's like, okay, whatever. You know, Kubrick was doing his own thing, and uh, and yeah, paid off. Okay, so let's guess what we rated it on Letterboxd. And um, and for listeners, this is kind of what we do at the end of every show. We, me and Brandon, guess what the other person rated on Letterboxd. Uh, Zach, I know that you don't rate on Letterboxd. <laughs> you just kind of log stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so do you want to take a guess as to what Brandon and I rated this first? Uh, Lewis, I think you gave it a four. And Brandon, I think you gave it a four and a half. All right. Um, Lewis, I think you gave it four and a half. Okay. Um, Brandon, I, I think you gave it four and a half as well. All right. Um, I gave it five. Damn. What? Yes. I, um, 
The last time I watched it, I gave it three and a half, mm-hmm. um, which made me kind of scowl at my phone. Mm-hmm. You know, ugh. five years ago, Lewis, you were an imbecile. What were you doing? You know, um, yeah, it's it's mesmerizing. It, it makes you think, you know, there's so many things in there that's just um, beautiful. Yeah, it's 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 a masterpiece. It's five stars. You, you, you yeah. are very uh, selective about doling out. You don't dole out fives. I don't. No. Okay. Yeah. Um. I also gave it a five. Damn. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, I just I can't like. How could you not? It's like what? What takes off the half star or the star? It's like there's this yeah. movie is perfect. It's amazing. That's why I rate at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a heart for me. I just loved it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could tell as soon as you said you'd watched it three times. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> within the last what week or couple of weeks it's like two, two and a half weeks something like that yeah yeah well we're gonna put it in the ranking well that's what i'm saying um i don't necessarily think that it's better than the shining even though i gave it yeah. half a star i gave yeah. the shining four and a half stars uh that's what i'll say first what do you what are you thinking i mean uh when i was looking at my personal would have been in between Shining and Strange Love. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I feel like Strange Love is better. You, or see, I, this, I, yeah. I think I just love Strange Love more. Yeah. I don't know. Strange Love is something that I can put on anytime. Yeah. Doesn't matter where I'm at, at, and anybody can watch it. I can't put this on <laughs> <laughs> wherever <laughs> I'm at and anybody can't watch it. Like me and the in-laws watching Full Metal Jacket. Many years yeah. ago, I went to a screening of Full Metal Jacket, uh, and afterwards there was a Q and A with Vincent D'Onofrio and Jan Harlan, um, and uh, I think it was like the last question of the night. Uh, the last person asked them, "What's your favorite? What's each of you, the moderator, Vincent D'Onofrio and Jan Harlan? What's your favorite Kubrick movie, and what's your favorite Star Wars movie?" That was like the last question of the night. All three of them said Strange Love is their favorite Kubrick movie. And they all said the first Star Wars is their favorite Star Wars. But the ubiquitousness of Strange Love is like that is a that is a movie that it's like the only Kubrick movie that strangers have ever like talked about with me. Yeah. <laughs> Especially mm-hmm. old men. Men my dad's age love that movie. <laughs> yeah. I would put it between Strange Love and A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, but, I think it's definitely in the top five. It's if it's four or five. Yeah. I don't know. What are we going to do? Rock, paper, scissors? <laughs> I mean, I as long as, I, you know, it's in it's in the top five. What did you I'm rate Dr. Strangelove? Oh, let me go back and have a look. I think, was it four and a half? Because I, ra- I rated The Shining four and a half. Yeah, I think. Let me pull it up. Should we just put it above The Shining? <laughs> I gave it four and a half. Um, that's strange love. Just stick it at number one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this will all be arbitrary next week when we never talk about this list again. Yeah. So I'm exactly. happy with it being number five. Okay. I'm happy if you're happy. I'm happy. Let's put it right there. And do you want to do the honors of the final official Film Church Radio Kubrick ranking? Sure. 
from bottom to top. Let's do it. All right, folks, coming in at number 13, Fear and Desire, 1953. <laughs> I'm going to take so long. <laughs> I'm just making this as long as possible. Coming in at number 12, we've got Spartacus from 1960. Coming in at number 11, we've got Lolita, 1962. Number 10, Killer's Kiss. 1955 number 9 The Killing 1956 number 8 Barry Lyndon 1975 (laughs) number 7 Full Metal Jacket 1987 number 6 A Clockwork Orange 1971 number 5 Eyes Wide Shut 1999 Number four, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, 1964. Number three, The Shining, 1980. Number two, Paths of Glory, 1957. And coming in at number one is 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. I did not expect it to look like this when we started. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I can't believe Killer's Kiss is above Lolita. <laughs> we we both had a blast with Killer's Kiss. You guys liked Killer's Kiss. I, I don't care for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every week as Lolita gets lower and lower, I'm like... Yeah. Oh, Didn't even make the top 10. <laughs> 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 Nearly made 13. <laughs> but, oh, no, uh, like, good. honestly, all these movies are amazing. It's like, what it, like... Yeah. It's splitting hairs. They're all, really. yeah. They're all number yeah. one. Yeah, apart from Spartacus and Fair Design. Nail bottom. (laughs) So we haven't done this for a while, though, Brandon. Are you going to surprise us with what we're watching next week? Yes, I am. My God, I bet you can't wait. I I bet the listeners can't wait. It's been a whole, the whole year of just Kubrick so far. Yeah. Um. Don't let it end. (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Uh, it's not ending, folks. We're going to go one more for you. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, part 14, AI, artificial intelligence. We're doing that next week. The afterword. <laughs> the uh, <coda>. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we might yeah, have a guest yet to, yet to be determined, but uh, if we do, we'll play that clip now. If not, <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back with no interruption. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm excited to hear you guys discuss this because did I? I know I asked you, Lewis, about if you you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a long time. I went to see it in the cinema when it was first released with my mom, and I haven't seen it since. Okay. Oh wow! Brandon, I have never watched it. You've never seen it. It's gonna be good. Never in my life. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, it, it is Spielberg's return to directing too, because he hadn't made a film since Saving Private Ryan. So there was a that long three-year <laughs> gap <laughs> movies for him. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm excited, and this is our first Spielberg on the pod. I think really probably yeah, yeah. official exciting times. Yeah, um, Zach, thank you so much for being with us. 
thanks for um, having me yeah always so great to have you on um love your analysis of these films it's always great um but that brings us to the end of the show and the end of the Kubrick retrospective kind of um, you can find us um, on Twitter and Instagram at Film Church Radio, and you can follow us individually on Letterboxd. Brandon is at Selman Scope, and I am at WalkerLewis3007. Uh, you can keep up with what we've been watching. We also have all our back episodes streaming on all good podcast platforms, and you can leave us a rating and review so we know if you like the film. If you didn't know what you would pick for us to watch in the future, um, thank you so much for being here. We love that you know people are listening. And we hope to see you next Sunday for more Film Church. All that we've got left to say is, you know, there's something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. Fuck. (laughs) Say your Film Church prayers. Amen. 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 Mazel tov.